0: Hello, I'm Peter Neophytos, and I'm Lee Shan Huang, and welcome to Forgotten Stories to Be Remembered. And today we have a story for you that you have never heard before. Last episode we told you a story that took place in Japan, a traditional folk tale, and today we're going to travel across the Pacific Ocean to another wood, uh, this the Canadian wood, and tell you a story that was set in beautiful Canada. In the 1750s. It is called Jean Michaud's Little Ship, and it's by Charles G.D. Roberts. And without any further ado, uh, we will begin.
1: Patiently, doggedly, yet with the light in his eyes that belongs to the enthusiast and the dreamer, young Jean Michaud had worked at it. Throughout the winter, he had hewed the seasoned timbers and the diminutive hackmatack knees from the swamp far back in the Equil Valley. And whenever the sledding was good with his yoke of black oxen, he had hauled his materials to the secret place of his shipbuilding, by the windy shore of the deep tidal tributary of the Port Royal. In the spring, he had laid the keel and riveted securely to it the squared hackmatack knees. It was unusual to use such sturdy and unmanageable timbers as these hackmatack knees for craft so small as this, which the young Acadian was building." But Jean Michaud's thoughts were long thoughts and went far ahead. He was putting all his hopes as well as all his scant patrimony into this little ship, and he was resolved that it should be strong to carry his fortunes.
0: Through all the green and blue and gold in Acadian summer, he had toiled joyously at bending the thin planks and riveting them soundly to the ribs, the stern and the sternpost. It was hot work, but white and savory, the clean spruce pranks that he wrought with breathing sweet scents to his lungs as axe and chisel and saw set free the tonic spirit of their fibers. His chips soon spread a yellow carpet over the mossy sward in the tree roots. The yellow sides of the graceful craft presently arose, high among the kissing branches of the water ash and Indian pear. The tawny, golden, shimmering current of the creek lipped up at high tide, close under the stern of the little ship, and set afloat the lowest layers of the chips. While at ebb a gleaming abyss of red mud, with walls sloping sharply to a mere rivulet at their foot, seemed to tempt the structure to a premature launching and a wild swooping rush to oozy doom. Very secluded, far apart from beaten highway or forest byway, and quite aside from all the river traffic, was the place of Jin Mashad's shipbuilding. And so it came about that the clear ringing blows of his axe, the sharp staccato of his diligent hammer, and the strident crying of his saw brought no answer but the chatter of the striped chipmunks among the near tree roots, or the scolding of the garrulous and inquisitive red squirrels from the branches overhead. At the quiet of the noon hour, while Jean lay in the shade contemplating his handiwork and weaving his many-colored dreams and munching his brown bread cakes and pale cheese, the clucking partridge hen would lead her brood out to investigate the edges of the chip strewn open where insects gathered in the heat, and afterwards, when once more Jean's hammering set up its brisk and cheerful echoes, the big golden-winged woodpeckers would promptly accept the sound as a challenge and begin an emulous ratatatting on the resonant soundboard of a dead beech not far off.
1: By the time the partridge brood had taken to whirring up into the maple branches when alarmed, instead of scurrying to cover in the underbrush, the hull was completed and a smell of smoking pitch drowned the woodsy odors as jean called the seams when the pale yellow of the timbers no more shone through the reddening leafage but a somber black bulk loomed impressively above the chips daunting the squirrels for days with its strange shadow by the time of the moose calling when the rowan berries hung in great scarlet bunches and half the red leafage was turning brown and the pale gold birch leaves fell in fluttering showers at every gust. Two slim masts had raised their tops above the trees, and a white bowsprit was thrusting its nose into the branches of the nearest red maple. Under the bowsprit glittered a carved and gilded Madonna, the most auspicious figurehead to which, in Jean's eyes, he could entrust the fortunes of his handiwork. A few days more and the ship was done, so nearly complete that three or four hours of work would make her ready for sea. Being so small, it was feasible to launch her in this advanced state of equipment, and the conditions under which she had been built made it necessary that she should be prepared to hurry straight from the greased ways of the launching to the security of the open sea. The tidal creek in which she would first take water could give her no safe harborage, and once out of the creek. She would have to make all speed under cover of night till Port Royal River and the sodded ramparts of Annapolis Town should be left many miles astern.
0: Having made his preparations and gathered his materials far ahead and devised his precautions with subtlety and accustomed his neighbors to the idea that he was an erratic youth given to long absences and futile schemes not worth gossip Jean had succeeded in keeping his enterprise a secret from all but two persons. These two, deep in his counsels from the first, were Bob Doudonnet, his sweetheart, and Mich Masson, his friend and ally.
1: Mich Masson, whose home, which served him best as a place to stay away from, was in the village of Grand Pre, far up on the basin of Minas, had been Jean's close friend since early boyhood, in the days before Port Royal Town had been captured by the English and found its name changed to Annapolis. He was a daring adventurer, hunter, woods ranger, an implacable partisan of the French cause, and just now deeply interested in the traffic between Acadie and the new French fortress city of Louisbourg, a traffic which the English governor was angrily determined to break up. Mishmason could sail a ship as well as set a deadfall or lay an ambush. He had kept bright in Jean's heart the flame of hatred against the English conquerors of Acadie. It was he who had come to the aid of Jean's shipbuilding from time to time, when timbers had to be put in place where they were too heavy for one pair of hands to work with. It was indeed at his suggestion that Jean had finally decided to sell his cottage on the outskirts of Annapolis town, his scrap of upland, with its apple trees in full bearing, his strip of rich dike land by the riverside, secretly to build his little ship for the forbidden traffic, to settle under the walls of Louisbourg, where the flag he had loved should always wave over his roof tree. It was Michemasson who had shown Jean how by this course he could quickly grow rich and make a home for Barb, which that somewhat disconcerting and incomprehensible maiden would not scorn to accept. Michel Masson loved his own honor. He loved Jean. He hated the English. Jean's secret was safe with him.
0: Mademoiselle Bob, under disguise of indifference, which sometimes reduced Jean to the not unprofitable condition whereon hard work is the sole refuge from despair, hid a passionate interest in her lover's undertaking. She too hated the new domination, She, too, chafed to escape from Annapolis and take up life anew under her old flag of the fleur-de-lis. Moreover, her restless and fiery spirit could accept no contented tiller of green Acadian acre for a mate, and she was resolved that Jean's courageous heart and stirring dreams should translate themselves into action. She would have him not only the daring dreamer, but the daring doer, the successful smuggler, the shrewd foiler of the English watchdogs, the admired and consulted partisan leader. That he had it in him to be all these things, she felt utterly convinced. But she proposed that the debilitating effects of too much happiness should have no chance of postponing his success. Her keen watchfulness detected every weak spot in Jean's enterprise, every unguarded point in his secret, in her two-edged mockery, which seemed as careless and inconsequent as the wind, at once accomplished the effects she had in view. Her fickleness of mood, her bewildering caprice, with the iridescent foam bubbles veiling a deep and steady current. She knew that she loved Jean's love for her, of which she felt as certain as dawn does of the sunrise. She had a suspicion in the deep of her heart, that she might be in love with Jean himself. But of this she was in no haste to be assured. She was loyal in every fiber, and Jean's secret was safe with her.
1: Thus the wonder came to pass that Jean's secret, though known to three people, yet remained so long a secret. Had the English governor, behind his sodded ramparts overlooking the tide, got wind of it, Never would Jean Michaud's little ship have sailed the open, save with an English captain and an English crew. It would have been confiscated, on the not unreasonable presumption that it was intended for the forbidden trade.
0: Early in the afternoon, on a day of mid-October, Jean stepped down the ladder, which leaned against the starboard bow of his ship, and contemplated with satisfaction the name Monrev which he had just painted in strong gold lettering. The exultation in his eyes became a passion of love and worship as he turned to the slim girl who lay curled up luxuriously on a sweet-smelling pile of dried ferns and marsh grass, watching him.
1: "'Since you won't let me name her directly after you, that is the nearest I can come to it, Barb,' he said. "'You can't find fault with that. You are my dream.' "'and all else besides.'
0: "'For a moment she watched him in silence. "'Her figure was of a childish slenderness, "'and there was a childish abandon in her attitude. "'The small hands crossed idly in her lap "'were very dark and thin and long-fingered, "'with rosy nails. "'She was dressed in skirt and bodice "'of the creamy Acadian homespun linen.' the skirt reaching not quite to her slim ankles. Her mouth was full and red, half sorrowful, half mocking. Her face, small and rather thin, was tanned to a clear, dark brown and of a type that suggested a strain of the ancient blood of the Basques. The thick, black masses of her hair, with a rebel wave in them, and here and there a glint of flame half-covered her little ears and were gathered into a knot at the back of her neck. The brim of her low-crowned hat of quilted linen was tilted far down to shade her face, and her eyes, very green and clear and large, made a bewildering brilliance in the shadow.
1: The light in her eyes softened presently, and she said in a low voice,
0: Poor boy. A very sharp reality you find me most of the time. I'm afraid.
1: For this unexpected utterance, Jean had no words of answer ready. But his look was a sufficiently eloquent refutation. He took a few eager steps toward her. Then, reading inhibition in the sudden gravity of her mouth, he checked himself.
0: Day after tomorrow, about sundown, said he, our lady and Saint Joseph permitting, we will get her launched. The tide will be full then, and we will run down with it and pass the fort before moonrise. If the wind's fair, we will get out of the basin and off to the sea that same night. But if it fails us, then there'll be tide enough to get us round the island and into a hidden anchorage in Hebert River. Then A cargo of Acadian beef and barley for Louisburg. And then, money. And then, and then
1: you. He looked at her with pleading and longing in his eyes, but with a doggedness about his mouth, which told of much pain endured, and a determination which might bide its time, indeed. But would not be balked. The look of the mouth she was conscious of, deep down in her heart, and she in reality rested upon it. But it was the look in his eyes which she answered. She answered it lightly. A mocking smile played about the corners of her lips, and her eyes sparkled upon him whimsically. The look both repulsed and invited him, and he hung for some moments, as it were, trembling midway between the promise and the denial.
0: Don't be so sure of me, she said at last. And his face fell. Not so much at the words themselves as at their discouraging accent.
1: "'But,' he protested, "'it is all planned, all done, just for you, Barb. There is nothing in it at all except you. It is all you that is understood between us from the first and all the time.'"
0: Still her mouth mocked him, and still her eyes gleamed upon him with their enigmatic light.
1: "'You will have your beautiful little ship,' she said slowly. "'You will have wonderful adventures.'" and little time to think of me at all. You will make a wonderful deal of money. You will make your name famous and hated among these English. I am expecting you to do great things. But as for me, I am not one yet, Jean.
0: His eyes glowed upon her, and the lines of his face set themselves with a sudden masterfulness. He gave a little, soft laugh.
1: You are mine. You will be my wife before I make my second voyage.
0: If you believe that, you ought to be a very happy man, she retorted, and her smile softened almost imperceptibly as she said it. You don't look quite as happy as you ought to,
1: Jean. Don't make me wait for my second voyage. Let me take you away from this unhappy country. Come with me. Come with me now. He spoke swiftly, his voice thick
0: with the sudden outburst of passion long held in check, and he strode forward to catch her in his arms.
1: Instantaneous as a darting bird or a flash of light on a wave, she was up from her resting place and away behind the pile of grass and ferns.
0: Stay there, she commanded, or I'll go home at once. And Jean stayed.
1: She laughed at him gaily, mercilessly.
0: Would you have me take you on trust, Jean? she questioned, with her head on one side. How do I know you are going to be brave enough to fight the English, or clever enough to outwit them? How do I know you really will do the great things I'm expecting of you? I know your dreams are fine, boy, but you must show me deeds.
1: I will, he answered quietly. Come here, sweet, just for one minute.
0: No! she said with a very positive shake of her small head. You must go on with your work. You have more to do than you realize. And I've something to do, too. I must go home at once.
1: That's not fair, Barb, he pleaded.
0: I don't care. It is good for you. No, don't come one step with me. Not one step. Go on with your work. I'm going to fly.
1: She ran lightly across the chips, at a safe distance from Jean's outstretched arms, and turned into the trail among the maples. There she paused, gave her lover one melting, caressing, but still half-mocking glance, and cried to him.
0: I am making a flag for Mon Rêve, and it's not nearly done yet. Jean...
1: Then she disappeared among the bright branches.
0: With a tumult in his heart, Jean turned back to his ladder and paint pot. Little twings of angry disappointment ran along his nerves, only to be smothered straight away in a flood of passionate tenderness.
1: Next voyage, anyway, he muttered to himself as he worked feverishly. I couldn't live longer than that without her and he went over and over in his imagination every detail of the girl's appearance, the changing moods of her radiant dark face, her hair, her hands, the tones of her voice.
0: Along the trail, through the autumn maples, meanwhile Mademoiselle Bob was speeding on light feet. The little smile was gone from the corners of her mouth, and into her eyes, now that John could no longer see them, was come a great gentleness. Her mockery, Her impatience, her picturesque asperity were a kind of game she played with herself, to disguise, sometimes even from herself, the greatness and the oversensitiveness of her heart. At this moment, she was feeling sore at the nearness of Jean's departure and was conscious of the pressure of his will urging her to go with him. This she was resolved she would not do, but she was equally resolved that her flag should be ready to go in her place. As for the next voyage, well, she thought to herself that Jean might persuade her by that time, if he tried hard. As to his success, she had not really a grain of doubt. She knew well enough the quality of his fiber. Her light feet, as she hurried, made hardly a sound upon the soft mold of the trail, which was half hidden by the brim, bright autumn carpeting of the leaves, but presently she heard the noise of heavier footfalls approaching. Just ahead of her, the trail turned sharply. Peering through the tangle of branches and thin leafage, she caught glimpses of something that caused her face to grow pale, her heart to throb up into her throat, and she stepped behind the thick shelter of a fir bush to consider what was to be done.
1: The sight that so disturbed her was in itself no terrible one, A tall, ruddy-faced, keen-eyed man, carelessly dressed but of erect military bearing, came striding up the trail, a gun over his arm, a brown dog at his heels. Barb recognized him at once, the English officer in command of the fort at Annapolis. She saw that he was out for partridges. But she saw also that he was walking at a pace that would speedily devour the scant two miles that divided him, "'from the shipyard of Montreve. "'It was evident that he had forgotten his shooting in his interest in this unknown trail "'upon which he had stumbled. "'If he went on, the game was up for Jean's little ship.'
0: "'She resolved that he should not go on. "'It took her just five seconds to decide the whole question. "'There was a large fallen tree close beside the trail two or three paces from where she hid. "'Over this she threw herself discreetly, With a little choking scream, and lay moaning among the
1: leaves beside it. The Englishman darted forward and was at her side in a moment, bending over her with a mingling of alarm and admiration in his gray eyes.
0: Mademoiselle, he cried, What has happened? Are you much hurt?
1: Receiving no answer but more faint moans, he lifted her gently and stood her on her feet. But the instant he released her, she collapsed upon the leaves. An appealing but intoxicating confusion of skirts, and slim brown hands, and crinkly dark hair, and the corner of a red mouth, and the glimpse of an ankle.
0: Mademoiselle, tell me what is the matter? Tell me what I can do. Let me do something. I beg of you. Lifting her again, he seated her beside him on the fallen tree, and this time he did not at once release her. At first, her eyes closed and her face a little drawn as with pain, she clung instinctively to his arm, with hands that seemed to him the most maddening that he had ever seen. Then, after several minutes, which were very agreeable to him in spite of his anxiety, she appeared to pull herself together with a mighty effort. She moved her away from his class, sat up straight, and opened upon him great eyes of pain and gratitude.
1: Oh, thank you, monsieur, she said simply. I'm afraid I have been very troublesome, but indeed I thought I was going to die.
0: But what is the matter, mademoiselle? Tell me, and let me help you.
1: She sat cringing and setting her teeth hard. He noticed how white were the teeth, how scarlet the full lips.
0: It is just my heart, she said. I was looking through the bushes to see who was coming. Something startled me, I think, and the pain clutched at my heart so I could not breathe. And I fell
1: off. She paused to moan a little softly and catch her breath. Before he could say anything, she went on. It's...
0: Better now, but it hurts horribly.
1: Let me support you, mademoiselle, he urged with eager courtesy.
0: But she shrank away from his approaching ministrations.
1: No, monsieur, I am better, really, but I must get home as quick as I can. She rose unsteadily.
0: The Englishman arose at the same time. But the next moment, Barb sank back again, biting her lips to keep back a cry.
1: "'Oh,' she gasped, "'I can't stand it. How can I get home?'
0: "'You must let me help you home, mademoiselle,' said the officer, authority blending with palpable enthusiasm in his tones.
1: "'You are so good, monsieur,' she murmured gratefully. "'But I could not think of taking you away back so far, almost to the village.' It will spoil your afternoon sport.
0: The sympathy of the Englishman's face gave way to amusement, and he hastened to assure her of her mistake.
1: Not at all, indeed, mademoiselle. It will be quite as much my pleasure as my duty to see you safely home. Your misfortune, if not too serious, is my great good fortune. Thanking
0: him with a look, Bob arose weakly and took the proffered arm. At first, the homeward journey was very slow, but as the afternoon deepened and the miles gathered between the English commandant and Jean's little ship, the girl began to let herself recover. By this time, she felt that there was no danger of her escort leaving her one minute before he was obliged to, and she knew that now, for this night, the ship was safe. At last... As they emerged from the woods into a high pasture ground behind the cottage where Barb lived with her aunt and uncle, the Englishman threw off the gallant for a moment and became the wide-awake officer. He paused, took his bearings carefully, and scrutinized the trail behind him with searching eyes.
1: "'I have not seen this road before, mademoiselle,' he marked, "'and it interests me. "'It is not down on our map of the Annapolis district.' Whither does it lead, may I ask? Barb's heart
0: grew faint within her, but she answered lightly, with a look that somehow conveyed to him the impression that he should not be interested in roads when she was by.
1: They haul wood over it, my uncle and his neighbors, in the winter, she answered, and black mud in the summer from the swamp back there.
0: The Englishman appeared satisfied, but she felt that his curiosity was aroused and with all her art she strove to divert his thoughts exclusively to herself. She succeeded in this to a degree that presently began to stir her apprehensiveness, and at her doorway she made her grateful farewells a trifle hurried, but the Englishman would listen to nothing more discouraging than, Au revoir. At last he said,
1: I shall be shooting over these woods again tomorrow. Barb clutched hard upon the latch and held her breath and shall give myself the pleasure of calling to ask after. But no, he corrected himself. You are making me forget, mademoiselle. I have a council meeting to fill my day with drudgery tomorrow. Barb breathed again at this respite. I must deny myself till the day after. I may call then, may I not?
0: There was a moment's pause, and in that moment the girl's swift brain made its decision. Certainly, monsieur le commandant, she said, "'sweeping his face with a brilliant glance "'that made his nerves tingle sweetly. "'I shall be much honoured. "'My aunt and I will be much honoured. "'And, with a curtsy half-mocking, half-formal, "'and a disastrous curving of her scarlet lips, "'she slipped into the house.
1: "'By Jove!' muttered the Englishman "'as he strode away in a daze.
0: From the window, behind the bean vines, Bob watched him go. The instant he was out of sight, she darted from the door, sped swiftly over the rough pasture lot, and disappeared among the twilights of the trail, where the afternoon shadows were already darkening to purple. She ran with the endurance of health and practice in a clean, breathing outdoor life. But presently, her breath began to fail, her heart thump madly against her slim sides. Then... Around a bend of the trail came Jean, returning earlier than wont. With an exclamation of glad surprise, he sprang forward to meet her. Still more was his surprise when she caught him by the shoulders with both hands and leaned, gasping and sobbing, against his breast.
1: After one fierce clasp, he held her lightly and tenderly, like a child, and anxiously scanned her face.
0: What is it, Barb, beloved? What is the matter? he questioned eagerly.
1: The ship, she panted, must go. You must go, tomorrow night.
0: Why? But it is impossible, he protested, bewildered. Mish won't be here till the day after, and one man can't launch her and sail her all by himself.
1: I tell you it must be done, she cried imperiously. You must, you must. And then, in a few edged words, she explained the situation. If you can't, all is lost she concluded, for they will discover you and seize the ship the day after tomorrow, Jean. I would never believe that you had any words as can't.
0: By this time, Jean's face was white and his jaw was set. Of course, he said quietly, it will be done somehow. I'm not beaten till I'm dead, but the chances are sweet that after I get the little ship launched, I'll run her aground somewhere down the river, and be caught next day like a rat in a barrel. It's ticklish navigating at best, down river, and one man can't rightly manage even the foresail alone, and steer, in those eddies and twists in the channels. But,
1: but Jean, she interrupted, and then paused leaning close against him and looking up at him with eyes that seemed to him to make a brightness in the dark.
0: But what, beautiful one, he questioned, leaning his face over her and growing suddenly tremulous with a vague, wonderful expectancy.
1: I can help, take me, and she hid her eyes against his rough shirt sleeve.
0: For one moment, Jeanne stood tense, moveless, unable to apprehend the sudden realization of his dreams. Then he swung her light figure up into his arms and covered her face and hair with kisses. With a little smile of content upon her lips, she suffered his madness for a while. Then she made him put her down.
1: "'There is no time now to make love to me,' she said. "'We've so much to do and plan.' You've never run away with a ship and a girl before, Jean, and we must make sure you know just how to go about it.
0: That night, Bob snatched a few hours of sleep, being mindful of the witchery of her eyes. But Jean toiled all night, driving his yoke of oxen to and fro between his cabin and his shipyard in the forest. And he was not weary. His heart was light as air and sang with every pulse. His strength and his star, he felt the equal to any crisis
1: on the following afternoon when it wanted yet an hour of high tide and the shadows of the maples were beginning to creep over the yellow chips all was ready full of wild gaiety and untiring as a boy barb had worked all day getting the sails bent the stores on board the last of block and tackle into place suddenly from a post of vantage in the high pointing bowsprit she looked down the trail and clapped her brown hands with a shout of delight.
0: Mish has come, she cried. In Messon, striding into the open, threw down a big red bundle on the chips.
1: Pretty nigh ready, he inquired. Why, what is the matter, mon gars?" Jean's
0: face had fallen like his heart. There was no longer any necessity of Bob sharing his adventure. But he hurried forward and clasped his
1: friend's hand. "'We've got to get away tonight,' he stammered, struggling bravely to make his voice sound cheerful. "'The English are coming over here tomorrow to find out what's going on, so it's time for us to be going off. Barb was to help me through with it.'
0: Mish held to Jean's hand and glanced questioningly from his troubled face to the girl's teasing one. But Barb had burned her bridges and saw no reason to be unmerciful.'
1: I suppose I'll just have to be crew and cabin boy now, Mish, she pouted. Jean was going to let me be first mate, and there wasn't to be any crew.
0: A great joy broke over Jean's face, and Mish removed his gray woolen cap with a sweeping bow. But before either could reply, there came from a little way up the trail the excited yapping as of a dog that had treed a partridge. The three looked at each other, their eyes wide with apprehension. Then, the report of a gun.
1: The Englishman, gasped Barb. He has not waited. Quick, hide, one each side of the trail and take him prisoner. Don't shoot him. He was kind to me.
0: Jean snatched up his musket and the two men darted into the bush. By a rope from the bulwarks, Bob swung herself lightly to the ground. In haste, she crossed the chip strewn open and then... Carelessly sweeping her hat in her hand and singing a fitful snatch of song, she sauntered up the trail to meet the intruder.
1: The trail wound rapidly, so that before she had gone two score paces, the ship was hid from her view. A few steps more, an Englishman came in sight, swinging forward alertly, a fluff of brown feathers dangling from his right hand. He was face to face with Barb, and the delighted astonishment that came into his eyes was dashed with a faint chill of suspicion.
0: "'How fate favors me, mademoiselle!' he exclaimed, doffing his cap. "'Gad, you are a brave girl to wander so far into the woods
1: alone.' "'No, monsieur, fate does not favor you,' retorted Barb with a sort of intimate petulance, holding out her brown fingers." You had no business coming today when you said you were not coming till tomorrow. Now you are going to find out a secret of mine, which I didn't want anyone to find out.
0: But you are not angry at seeing me, he protested.
1: No, 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 she answered, her head upon one side in doubt, while she bewildered him with her eyes. But I'm sorry in a way. Well, come and I'll show you. Forgive me for lying to you yesterday about this road
0: and she turned to accompany him, walking very close to his side so that her slim shoulder touched his arm and blurred his sagacity.
1: The next instant came the sharp order, Halt, don't stir, or you're dead.
0: The Englishman found himself facing two leveled muskets. At the same moment, his own weapon went flying into the underbrush, twitched from his hold by a dexterous catch of Bob's fingers.
1: He stood still and very straight his arms at his sides eyeing his assailants steadily his first impulse was to dart upon them with his naked hands but he saw the well-knit form of jean almost his own height the lean set face a certain exultation in the eyes which he read aright and he saw the shrewd dark confident look of mich the experienced master of situations The red mounted slowly to his face, and he turned upon Barb, a look wherein reproach at once gave way to scorn and a kind of shame. Barb herself flushed under that look. You wrong me, monsieur, she cried impetuously. I did it to save you. You are a brave man and would have tried to fight, and they would have killed you. He
0: bowed stiffly and turned to the men. What do you want of me?
1: Your parole, said Jean. Give me your word that you will come with us quietly, making no resistance and no efforts to escape. The Englishman shut his lips doggedly.
0: Then you must be bound, said Mish with curt decision. We've no time to waste.
1: Let me bind you, monsieur, said Barb, taking his wrists gently and putting them behind his back. It is no dishonor to be captive to a woman.
0: With a silk scarf from her waist... In a feminine cunning of knots, she quickly tied his hands together so that he felt himself quite hopeless of escape. Then, in a cold wrath, he was led forward, with no constraint but Bob's touch upon his arm. The ship, high on her stocks, came into view. And he understood.
1: Seating himself upon a log with his back against a tree, Mish passed a rope about his waist and made him fast to the trunk. There he sat and chewed his indignation while his captors went in haste about their work. But presently he grew interested. He saw the blocks knocked out from under the little ship's sides, so that she came down upon the greased ways and slid smoothly into the flood. He saw her checked gradually by a rope turned once around a tree trunk, so that she was kept from running aground on the opposite side of the basin. He saw a small boat dragged down from the bushes to the edge of the tide and oars put into it. By this time, he had revolved many aspects of the case in his mind. Then came to him Barb and Jean.
0: Monsieur, said Jean, I regret to have inconvenienced you in this way. But you would have, without mercy, wrecked all my hopes. I have put "'all my means into this little ship built with my own hands. "'My heart is set on removing from the land of Acadie, "'to live once more under my own flag of France. "'But I do not wish to take you a prisoner to Louisbourg "'or to put you to any further annoyance. "'To Mademoiselle Doudonnet, you showed yourself yesterday "'a most kind and courteous gentleman. "'All Acadie knows you are brave.' Give me your word that you will in no way seek to stop or hinder our departure. And let me set you free.
1: Give me your parole, monsieur, begged Barb, or you will have to devote yourself to entertaining me all the way to Louisbourg.
0: The Englishman's face brightened. Almost you make me wish to go to Louisbourg, mademoiselle. With the duty you apportion me, I should be much happier... I assure you, than here in Annapolis, trying to govern your good fellow countrymen. But I will give my parole. I promise you, sir, and he turned his face to Jean, that I will not in any way interfere with the departure of you and your ship from Acadie.
1: Thank you, said Jean, and he undid the rope and the scarf.
0: The Englishman arose, walked down to the waterside with Barb, and with elaborate courtesy helped her into the boat. He bent his lips over her hand as he said goodbye.
1: Turning upon him, then a laughing face of farewell, Barb cried.
0: Never, never will I pardon you, Monsieur, for consenting to give your parole,
1: Mademoiselle he answered. I am your prisoner still and always.
0: And that was Jean Michaud's little ship which was published in the Saturday evening post in 1900 and it is by the late Charles G.D. Roberts. Well thank you for 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 reading that story with me uh LeSean.
1: Yeah it was good fun like Being immersed in that world of the Acadian forest with uh, all this shipbuilding terminology, I thought it was really transportive to another time, another place.
0: It's interesting because, as I just said, it was written in 1900s, right on the dot, right? Right at the end of 1900. So it's it's a piece of history in and of itself, but it's historical fiction, right? Because it takes place uh, around... 1760, right? That's the time period in which this conflict between the French was happening, right?
1: Yeah. Um, At the time, I think it was just before the deportations where the British deported Acadians from the lands of Acadie, which is now the, the maritime provinces of Canada, to places like Louisiana where they became Cajuns. It's interesting the the time period in terms of the conflicts between the English and the French at this point but also at the time where, when this was written Canada was a relatively young country uh, as a confederation and so there was a kind of a, a national mythmaking project you can see at, at work here right in terms of mythologizing some of this conflict but also romanticizing it in this way as we see in this story
0: mm-hmm. yeah definitely and you know it's not written too far off from the american civil war which was in you know ended in 1860 so that really sort of would still be on the the uh, at least people's minds people who are still alive who had remembered it so it, in a way it's it's just sort of connected to that in my mind in a weird way um a much more sort of a di- very different conflict but still um uh, situation, the the forming of North America and the countries of North America and the, the different cultures was not a smooth process at all, clearly. Um, it, it's also interesting for me that I mean reading this story now, right? We are as far away from when the story was written as the author was when the story actually took place. He's actually in the mid place in time, though it feels like a lot more has passed. In the last 120 years than the author experienced in terms of, I think he was actually closer to that time period than we are, if that makes sense. Or he was closer to that time period than we are close to him. The last 120 years, a lot has happened in terms of how war has changed, how technology has changed, and how North America has changed. Um, There's this deep connection to the woods that he's portraying in the story that the characters have. And it's totally believable, but I think the unbelievable story aspects of this story are that um, people are so connected to the woods and to nature. The fact that one man alone can build a little ship. Right. We would be hard pressed to find the average guy who could do the type of stuff that John's doing today. With a little
1: help from his friends, but yeah, more or less one man. Yeah.
0: And then. The other thing that I found so interesting is, like, they're walking vast distances like it's nothing, right? So Barb wakes up in the morning and goes and visits Jean's little ship, which is at least five miles in the wood. Because as she's heading back, there's that line, speedily devour the scant two miles that divided him from the shipyard of Monterey. That's where she meets the commandant, right? So it's already two miles from him. Right they're less than halfway cuz they then spend the rest of the afternoon walking right and so she walks 4 miles in the morning let's say to get to the ship she's going to walk 4 or 5 miles back and then she's willing to run the extra 5 miles back to him at night so she's willing to go 15 miles in and out of the woods right um for this guy and it's it's like people don't do that anymore and this is the deep woods there's not a road there's not a sidewalk she's tramping through And there's a strange uh, connection to nature that it's almost like the default. She's a very intelligent girl and clearly a great actress, yet she's definitely a creature of nature. She can make it out of the woods with great speed. She lives in this house with windows and she glances behind bean vines. I think that's something that we, we don't really have an association with today with people being... Country people that are, are living in the woods, and the woods is the default, right? I mean, North America is at this point is just a bunch of woods, not nat- national parks that you're venturing to, but the default are the woods.
1: Yeah. I'd like to focus a little bit on some of the gender dimensions of Barb as a woman, right? Because it makes me wonder about Roberts. Is it, in some ways, he very much focuses on her the way she looks. It's almost like semi exoticizing her in terms of like focusing on how she's tan and slightly brown. Uh, but as you said, she's also like athletic running through the woods and has this sense of like mischief and and trickery, which might be very different from that time period's idea of a Western white woman, right? Certainly in all these period dramas with their corsets and and all of that. But then at the same time, I feel like there is something kind of proto feminist about all of this because she has like the most agency of all, right? Sort of playing all the men, even in this like supposedly patriarchal society that's quite violent, you know, in this immediate post conflict kind of situation.
0: He does play off gender stereotypes, I think, to a certain degree. But at the same time, she plays she plays off them as well and she sort of uses them to her advantage and it makes her a very interesting and, and powerful character in the end. But yes, she is the one that runs the show in many ways and she saves Jean's mission. And they also, this aspect of her, she would have him be the daring dreamer, but also the daring doer. She's very much, you know, Um, and she's determined that he not have too much fun. (laughs) She wants him to succeed in his mission, and she's not messing around. So I do think there's a sort of proto-feminist point or aspect to her that is interesting. And there's this duality to her character. At one point in the, the story, there's this reference to her fickleness of mood, her bewildering caprice, and um, they say were the iridescent, I think, foam bubbles rising from a deep <laughs> and steady current. So there is this this depth to her. I think I, I flagged the line also. Let me see. Um, her mockery, her impatience, her picturesque expectancy with a kind of game which she played with herself to disguise, sometimes even from herself, the greatness and oversensitiveness of her heart. I thought that was a really profound thing because, A... The author is hitting on something that I think is really true today. That a lot of people, I think this is relevant for queer men, even that there's sort of this mask that is worn because we're a lot of people have been really hurt and they're sensitive. And so they put on this sort of mockery, this mask. And where she succeeds is she's able to put it on and then take it off as a choice. Mm. The mask is not a prison. And that's what makes her such an admirable and fluid character in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. So you're saying that she's kind of aware of these constructions of gender and her expectations and she's able to play them.
0: Yes. And it doesn't make her in the end cruel. She could have easily said to Jean, "Kill him." (laughs) Yeah, you know, but she doesn't. She she played the guy, but she says to him, "Do not shoot him. He was kind to me," and I think that that shows that even though she uh, she puts on the mask, puts on the armor. She still has full access to her heart, which is something that I think we all need to work on in this. Because we all have to wear masks. We all have to wear personas to protect ourselves in this modern world. But the fact that we, she still has a, an awareness of her humanity makes her such a dynamic character and something to really watch. Um,
1: right. It gives characters from both sides of this conflict a certain dignity because of their honor, right? Whether it's her as this trickster figure but still having the sense of honor as you said and like not killing him, sparing his life, and then also the Englishman as this colonizing force but also a gentleman in his own way, right? That there's this game to it. What is that expression like all's fair in love and war and just this idea of their flirtation but also this… Uh, conflict, right? And how it plays out and um, what the rules of engagement are. And it seems like both sides have an understanding of it.
0: They do. And it's very uh, interesting that you bring that up because I, I also wanted to talk about how what makes him... At first, the commandant is very angry that he's captured, right? He's He feels betrayed. And obviously, I mean... He does realize that he's been with the enemy and whatnot. But what turns his mind about it at the end is that he sees the ship and the the work that Jean has put into this little ship. And that makes him begin to admire him in a strange way and see him as someone else that he can connect to. There's also this part, I think, that's also interesting in that they offer parole to him. And he's an enemy, yet they're willing to take this guy on his word that he's not going to betray them. I mean, that certainly doesn't happen
1: anymore, right? Yeah, I don't think it does.
0: So it's it's interesting, because I, I've thought a little bit about the parole aspect. And when we think about it, Parole was was happening during the American Revolution, right? And it started to break down, but it was still happening. Officers usually were captured and they weren't usually killed. They were so, just sort of told like, okay, promise you won't fight for a certain number of months and we'll let you go. We won't kill you. And it really it really began to break down um, actually with the, the hanging of Major John Andre. Um, who was the adjunct general who broke with the deal with Benedict Arnold to betray the American the the West Point. He was captured, and Washington refused to give him parole and instead had him hanged. And mm-hmm. that, in a lot of ways, I believe the hanging of John Andre was sort of the the beginning, the beginning of the end of the old world, this idea of gentlemen being treated and sort of rules of engagement. And I was thinking about this, the last officer, to be offered to parole sort of the, the um, was uh, and I'll bring him up because he's very controversial was Robert E. Lee. So mm-hmm. Robert E. Mm-hmm. Lee was offered parole at the end of the civil war, but it wasn't the exact end they were They were still fighting, but grant granted Robert E. Lee and his entire army of Northern Virginia, which was about 30,000 troops parole and said, okay, I'll wow. let you all go as long as you promise not to fight any longer hmm. and give your firearms up. They could keep their small weapons, but not their major rifles, and they could keep their horses because he saw that the army was starving. But wow. the, the war was still going on. It went on for several months, and it's rather extraordinary that he it was offered. Um, and we know this is real because it was in the Treaty of Appomattox. And when the radical Republicans wanted to hang Lee and try him as a, tr- a tr- traitor, um, Grant stepped forward and said, you can't because he's protected by the Treaty of Appomattox and he has not violated his parole. And and what's interesting is, you know, right now there's a lot of discussion about Lee and, you know, his controversy and whatnot. And, and some people have said, well, he was definitely peaceful after the war, the five years that he survived. He didn't, you know, seek to raise up arms, but the reality is, is had Robert Ely ever done such a thing like that, ever he would have violated his parole, and then he could have been hanged. Mm. So it it um it's just an interesting uh, but that was the end. This this that was the end. So the story is sort of depicting um, uh, you know, after certainly after World War One, paroles during conflict never happened. No one was ever captured in World War One. Once modernism happened, it just that that idea of taking the word of your enemy and believing the word of your enemy um, was gone.
1: Right. Yeah, it's interesting to look at this through the lens of war and armed conflict, right? That there's this almost romantic anachronistic notion of honor amongst opponents, right? Just before the two world wars and the sense of total war that would mark the modern era. So this really is a kind of longing for that perhaps Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to some of this myth-making that we were talking about, right? That Canada as part of its national myth is about this coming together of uh, the British and the French, right? These two rival colonialisms that have clashed sort of continue to as uh, one of the main political fault lines and identity lines in Canada today, but that it's like, oh, well, the British were still honorable and the French could have been tricky, but also honorable. And, mm. you know, the, whose absence in all of this, of course, is like, you know, the natives and the native genocide and, and all of that sort of stuff. But it's like within these two rival European powers, there is this kind of sense of honor as part of the the national myth-making.
0: Yeah, and honor, the root of honor, or honesty. There's a difference between truth and honor, right? Mm. They act with honor toward one another, but they don't always tell the truth.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) She definitely doesn't tell the truth, but they act with a sense of honor and honesty toward one another. And that leads me to this idea also of love that I think is so beautiful in this. I mean, there's this lovely aspect of, of love in the story. I like in the beginning, and I guess it's a it's a reference to the Longfellow poem where they talk about Jean having um, Jean Machaud's thoughts were long thoughts and went far ahead. Um, and that's, uh, that's clearly a reference to Longfellow's poem, My Lost Youth. What is a long thought? Well, we know what it is, but we can't really describe it, but he's referencing it. And, and Barb loves Jean. That's evidence. And she wants so much of him. But then she sees the English commandant, and she may not love him, but she and the commandant, I think, definitely hit it off, right? There's definitely yeah, chemistry. I think there's
1: something real there that's not just pure, like, trickery, it seems, right? I mean, in terms of their, their repartees. Absolutely. Like, it's not like she breaks character at the end, No. <laughs> I mean,
0: like, and it's so – I love the line, like, let me bind you. It is no dishonor to be captive to a woman. And what is it? I mean, that's like – that's such a loaded phrase today, and so right, it's a bit
1: SM, right? I yeah, mean, I actually, <laughs> it's like some exactly. bondage kind yeah. of stuff.
0: I, mean, I, when I read that, I was like, I can't believe he wrote that, you know. But and his eyes light up, right? Uh, and he loves her when, when she says to him, You know, offer your parole, or I will make you entertain me all the way to Louisburg. His eyes lit up, he loves her, and it for him was clearly love at first sight, um, and. He fell out of love with her, and but he, he sort of warms back to her when he realizes what she's done for this other man. Um,
1: mm. Oh, that's interesting. You know, and,
0: and I also think there's a sense of, we can't dismiss the fact that, okay, he walks through the woods for miles, taking her home, uh, you know, and then he's willing to do it again. And um, it's, that I mean it's miles and he gives up a hunting trip, which I have friends who are married and their husbands would never give up their hus- their hunting trip for them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean but he's willing to do it and and so that's why she opts that he shouldn't die, right? Because he, he right. loves her.
1: And but also, doesn't he lie in a way because he says he has a council meeting, but he still shows up the next day? That's so true. It's either he blows off his meeting to go hunting as a pretext for seeing her, or it's like you know part of throwing her off in some way. That's I, true. We don't really know, right? We
0: don't really know. But the point is, is that they definitely hit it off in this line, where she says it right in front of her future husband. I assume Jean will be. Never, never will I forgive you for offering your parole. I mean, that's such a flirtation. Right. And she's really acknowledging that she's having this a sort of affair of the heart. But um you know, when and then he acknowledges it. He says, I'm your prisoner always. And this happens right in front of Jean. But Jean's okay with it, you know, and to well, me Well it does
1: save them, right? In a way, it's like it gives her agency as like a as a sexual being in a way, even if it's sort of um Nothing really happens; it's just flirtation. But that she has that agency there, which I find quite powerful.
0: Yes, but I also think that it's an acknowledgement that you know, even though she has this man that she loves, John, and she's she's chosen him, and she's going to go forth. Her their ship has literally sailed sailed together. You know, yeah. Together, there's an acknowledgement and an open acknowledgement. That there's an alternative reality that could have happened, but there's, there's limits to life because, and that you can have love without possession, um, because there's only so many paths in this life that we can possess. And even though the thoughts of youth are long, life is short Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and there's only so much love that can actually be materialized in terms of relationships but it's nice to see that she acknowledges a subjunctive reality that in another world in time she could have loved him and he could have loved her i think that's that's a lovely acknowledgement at the end that's what i got i don't
1: know yeah i agree it's like it gives her agency beyond just the deception that it it could have been if they had been on different sides of this conflict, right? Or if they had been on the same side of this conflict rather than on different sides and if the circumstances were different.
0: Exactly. And, and that makes it, uh, That's what when I read that at the very end, that was what first drew me to the story and continues to draw me. It's a, it's a, it's a real revelation of the vulnerability, strength of character, I think. Anyway, so those things I want to talk about.
1: <laughs> I'm so glad you found this story and gave us a chance to revive it in a way. Well,
0: thanks. Well, thanks for sharing it. So, all right. Well, listen, thanks everyone for listening. And we're going to be back soon with, um, with some more tales that you've never heard before that deserve to be remembered. So this is our podcast, Forgotten Stories, to be remembered. We look forward to telling you another tale in the future.
1: All right. Until next time.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.